Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 9. We'll finish Acts chapter 9 this morning. Let me read for us, starting in verse 32. It says this. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. (laughs) And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and, sh- and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. Gracious uh, Father, merciful God, thank you for giving us such an incredible story. Father, not one of uh, fiction, but one of nonfiction, something that happened in history that we can look back to and see another facet of your marvelous character, Father, another facet of your good design and another facet of your plan for us. Father, may we see all these things this morning, Father, for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name, amen. What a joy it is to get to help other people, to bring restoration and healing to a person's life, not necessarily the, the one who physically is making it happen, certainly God is the one who does that, but to be a part of bringing God's assistance, to, to be a part of helping someone walk in reconciliation or restoration, whatever the issue is, whether it's one because of just physical brokenness, which is still a result of the fall, or helping someone because of brokenness caused by sinfulness, both. It is a joy to be a part of someone's life, to walk with them through that, to be an instrument in reversing the cause of the fall, or the or reversing the effects of the fall, rather, to reversing brokenness. It is a joy. I hope it's a joy to you as well. But even in our greatest moments, even in the, the moments of where we're wearing the most shining armor, right? The times we're helping people the most, there is still, most likely within each of our hearts, poor motives and poor desires. 
Meaning there are reasons, mixed reasons for which we are doing what we're doing. And there are mixed desired outcomes that we have for people. Some good desires for that person, some bad desires for that person. Some good motives in why we are helping and probably deep within there a bad motive for why we are helping someone. And here's the reality. If in that dark corner of our hearts there is some truth to what I just said, then that will have some bearing on what you actually end up doing or not doing and helping somebody. And being a part of their life and helping to restore brokenness. Something is going to be detoured or driven by that portion or that corner of our hearts that is still not yet surrendered to the Lord. It will drive what we do. When it comes to helping people, to give a few examples of what I'm talking about, we often want to, like, we want the helping of other people to be when we deem ourselves available. Like when it's convenient for us. When it's convenient to our time. Or we want to help other people when it makes most sense financially. Or again, when we have the time or the other resources to help someone. We, we want to help when we deem ourselves available to help. That's an example, I would say, of something inside our hearts that's driving us to the wrong thing. To serve for the wrong reasons. To serve with the wrong motives. <clears throat> Another example is we have such a small view of glory, God's glory that is, that we want to get some sort of glory out of the situation for ourselves, for our doing, for our helping someone. A couple practical examples. We want that thank you. We want that appreciation. Or we want that praise and recognition. Another example of the effects of having wrong motives and wrong desires in helping people is the example of we give oftentimes, most oftentimes, more freely to those that are more comfortable to give to. You know, the ones that don't take that much work to give to. But here's the grace in all of this. The reality is that if you have been helped by the gospel of Christ, if you have been changed by the gospel, then you will want to help other people. Now let me give you a caveat here. Just because you want to help other people doesn't mean you have been redeemed. But if you have been redeemed, then you necessarily will want to help other people. To different levels, right? To different to where you're at in your journey in your maturity, in your sanctification, it will be to different strengths. But it's still there. We talked about sacrifice last week as a necessary fruit of conversion. Suffering, sacrificing on, on behalf of other, of other people. But again, just because you are more prone to give of yourself to other people doesn't mean that you have actually been saved by the gospel of Christ. I would not want to give any false hope this morning. 
But if you've been helped by the gospel, you will want to help other people. And it's, it's, it's a change that God has made in you. It's a reflection of the God who has helped you, who has helped us. A God who has helped us not just through struggle, but one who has helped us out of eternal destruction, ultimately. Why would you not want to share that help with others? If you've experienced it, you will want to do it. And praise God for that. If there is evidence in your life of that, then be thankful to God for that. And here's what I want to talk to you about today from this passage. That if you want to help people, if you want to be a help to others, I think we see in this passage a very foundational grid or set of guidelines for helping people. For being a a gospel help to people. Not just meeting needs, not just putting band-aids on people's struggles and situations, but actually helping them eternally. The first thing in how to be a gospel help to others is this, be involved. You have to be involved. There's nothing profound here, but you have to be involved. In 32 and 33 it says this, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. <clears throat> and what I want you to notice here is that amidst other important things, Peter is involved. Peter is not just involved in doing business type things and leadership type things. He is certainly doing those, but he's involved in the people's lives. That's the point. He goes from here and there among them all. He came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. I mean, think about what's happening in Jerusalem at this point. Thousands of people have been saved. Persecution is heightening. It's on the rise. Peter had lots of very important and even very good practical things to be about. Yet Peter was involved. He didn't isolate himself into the things that were maybe most comfortable. Peter was on the move. He was about the business of God and God directed him as such. So here's some application for us. To be involved means you must be there. To be involved in someone's life, to be involved and to be a help to others, you have to be there. Listen, if you don't want to be used by God, then stay home, stay in your cubicle, fill your mind with selfish things at once. And you won't have to worry about a single thing we talk about today. But if you want to be a help to others, you have to be present. You have to be there. Now certainly there are seasons of life and there are illnesses and other various good reasons that might shift your involvement in other people's lives. But I want to remind you from this passage that amidst the really, 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 really good things like preaching to thousands of people and training up other pastors, etc., etc., Peter was involved in the people's lives. I struggle with this as a pastor. I have so many other things like 
like thinking about the, the next phase for DNA and spending hours doing that and, and trying to, and that's for people's goods. And, but I, doing that, but I have to be involved in people's lives. So certainly, here's the deal. Yes, there are times when sicknesses and stage of, I mean, think about this even in my own family's life with, with my wife and trying to lead her and what her ministry looks like outside of our home. And obviously that looks different than a different lady's, than another lady's ministry. And so trying to sort that out, even what that looks like for us to be faithful to caring for our kids and that being one of her primary ministries and but then what does that look like beyond that? And to be faithful to a text like this. So I, I don't want to l- give a burden that's unnecessary to anyone. But at the same time, I don't want to give you an excuse to just do what you really want to or what's most comfortable. We must think through these things and be careful how, we think, how we're thinking through these things. Listen, if you want to be used by God to care for other people, you have to be involved. You say, well, I just don't know what others in my house gathering need. Let me ask you this question. Are you involved or do you just show up to receive? Well, I just don't know what my pastors need. I want to bless them. Question, are you involved or do you just show up to receive? Well, I don't know how to minister to my coworkers. I don't know what's going on in their lives. So again, the question is, are you involved or you just show up to work to receive? You ever think about it that way? Well, but I'm there to work. Uh, Well, you're there to get a paycheck. Are you there just to receive or are you there to serve? When you're at home with your children, are you making the mundane decisions because it's about what you want to receive or are you there to be involved and to give? Being involved means being present to serve, to give yourself, to give away yourself. Listen, those who are actively involved in caring for others, doing ministry for others, are the ones that God grants the most opportunities to. Now, this is a clear observation. God usually grants the most ministry opportunities to His most faithful ministers. And there's plenty of opportunities to go around. But again, in order to be used greatly, you must be involved greatly. You will see the opportunities. They will be clear. And lastly, our call is to be involved in the lives of others for their good. For their good. Peter, I mean, we don't know Peter's heart. But what we do know is that to move in and out of the people, to be involved in other people's lives, to genuinely be doing that as one who has everything they need in Christ is to not need anything from this relationship, but to give of themselves to this person. Again, this means you have to go. It means you have to ask. It means you have to seek. It means it's not about you. It means being involved in others, for others. Listen, Peter was on a move, on the move to be a blessing to others. We'll talk about why in a little bit. So be involved. If you want to be a gospel help to others, you have to be involved. You have to move outside 
And for most of us, it means moving outside of what is comfortable for us. It's moving outside of our sinful motives and our oftentimes sinful desires. We have to move outside ourselves. Second, is we, if we want to be a gospel help, we must be Christ-exalting. We must be Christ-exalting. Verse 34, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Just a quick note here. I, I love how he tells him to rise and make your bed. Don't forget to make your bed. I love it. I think it's part of the reason he tells him to make his bed is he's showing the completeness of his healing. That he not only can now uh, get out of his bed, but he's capable to make his bed now. There's a completeness to his healing. It's not an ongoing, progressive type healing that we see nowhere in the Scriptures. Whenever someone is healed in the New Testament, they are healed completely and totally and immediately. It kind of blows out of the water this idea, well, if I just have enough faith, I'll get healed. And so you have to grow in faith over time, and then you'll be healed over time. That's not what the Scriptures present. He heals him. Anyways, that's a side note. Let's move on. Peter understood. Here's what Peter understood. That if he did not abide in Christ, he could not do what he was about to do. He knew that if he did not exalt Christ, that he could not do the task that he was called to do. And Peter writes later in 1 Peter 4, verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter understood that if you're truly serving, you have all the strength necessary to do the servitude or do the acts which God has called you to do. And he knew that he did not have that himself. When we think about serving someone, we don't have the strength to be unselfish. We need Christ's strength to do that. We don't have the strength to bear with all the energy necessary oftentimes to serve. But Christ does. We don't have the ability to put someone's life back together. But God does. We don't have the strength and the ability to point someone in the right direction and send them on their way of glorifying God and living for the kingdom. Only God can do that. So trust God. Step out. Serve. And just when you think you have no more to give, faithfully His strength supplies. That's a real good test. We talk about burnout all the time and all this. And and not that... I don't want to throw all that thought out the window, but a good bit of when I see someone talking about they're burned out, they're not living by 1 Peter 4.11. They're not serving in the strength of the Lord. <clears throat> here's, our, here's our struggle. So if you want to be a gospel help, you have to exalt Jesus. That's what has to happen. Our problem, though, is we want to exalt ourselves, right? That's the necessary 
opposite. Like that's, it's, it's one or the other. It's not, I can exalt Jesus and exalt myself. It's one or the other. They are, uh, they don't go together. We often choose what we do or how we do it based upon how much exaltation we will get from it. So if I can't get maximum exaltation from this, maybe because I can't do it as well as I want to be able to do it, so I'm not going to do it because I won't get the exaltation I want from being able to accomplish the task that I'm about to do. Multiple, I want to give you multiple examples. How about I only spend my time with my children this way because it will produce what I want. Why? So that I can exalt myself. Because, or sometimes we choose it because we want others to see it and so exalt us. Or sometimes we choose what we do because others won't see it. And we feel good about no one being able to see it. Oh, just the Lord knows my grand obedience in this moment. What is that? Just because others can't see and exalt you doesn't mean you're not doing it to exalt yourself. We exalt ourselves. Listen, another example. We exalt ourselves when we claim, when we cling to ourselves as the capable ones. Let me, just, let me, def, let me describe that, what I mean by that. Self-sufficiency is nothing more than an exaltation of self striving for further exaltation of self. Let me say that again. Self-sufficiency is nothing more than an exaltation of self striving for further exaltation of self. Self-sufficiency says this. I am exalted enough to do this on my own. And when I do it on my own, I am reminded of the worthiness of my exaltation. I'm good. I got this. Pride. Pride is another reason we want to exalt ourselves. Let me ask you this question. What if you get absolutely nothing from your ministering? What if you were to get absolutely nothing from it? Is it enough for you to know that Christ was exalted in your humble heart. Is that enough? Would that be enough? Like, do we understand? Do we understand, listen, that when we are doing it for a thank you, when we are wanting recognition as though you need it, then you have exalted yourself from a place of servitude to a place of prominence. Now listen, it's one thing for me to, to, to take one of my children and teach them how to show gratitude and appreciation. But even in that moment, if I am pushing them to say thank you to me because I need it for what I have just done for them, then I have exalted myself from a place of servitude to a place of prominence. as though I deserve it because I am somehow worthy. The Scripture said we are worthy of condemnation but have been rescued by the blood of Christ. 
Listen, when we, when we do this, when we, when we exalt ourselves, we have left behind exalting Christ and we have put ourselves on that throne. We are saying to the other people around us, don't exalt Jesus, exalt me right now. Next kind of sub-point of exalting Christ is this. If you're not pointing people to Christ, then you're not helping people. So if you want to be gospel help, you have to exalt Christ. Otherwise, you're helping them live apart from Christ. We think about this in counseling. We think about this in leading my children. Think about this in leading the church. I mean, talking to your neighbor. If you're not helping point someone to Christ, then you're pointing them to Antichrist. Let me give you a few examples here. If you're exalting yourself then your servitude is likely going to be very unhelpful to those who you are trying to help. To those you are trying to help if you're exalting yourself. Here's why. Here's why if you're trying to exalt yourself, your servitude or your help, what you think is helpful, is probably not going to be helpful. Because here's, here's the reality of what you're doing. If you're serving someone to exalt yourself or to make much of yourself or to get something out of it, here's what you're doing. Let me be very clear. You are using that person for your gain. You want to know another way to put it? You're abusing that person. It's just abuse. You're using someone for yourself. That is anti-gospel. Christ came to give himself completely for our good. When we use other people for our gain, we will get manipulative, and it's just simply abuse. Second, so thinking about this, if we're not exalting Christ, then we're not helping others Two other kind of situ- examples of that is one, in issues of sin. In issues of sin in someone's life, walking them through repentance and faith, trusting in the Lord. And what does the exaltation of Christ look like? If you just give people band-aids for the, sin, the brokenness caused by sinfulness in their lives, you're not helping them. You're helping them learn how to live in their sinfulness apart from Jesus. Which, as we should know, that is what leads people to hell. So in in matters of sinfulness, are you pointing people to hope in Christ alone for their soul, for their brokenness? That's what they need. But let me be quick to give you the other side of this, is that in issues of non-sin, meaning like... uh, it's a physical brokenness in their life, in their body, in whatever the case is. Even in that situation, there may not need to be repentance for a particular sin, but Christ still must be exalted in that. Here, that's the example we have in this story. Is that th- there is no indication that the bedriddenness of this man was because, or the death of Tabitha or Dorcas was, was because of a sinful decision in their life. It was brokenness of their body. The, but even in those examples, Christ alone is exalted. 
Listen, Christ is the hope of glory. He alone is our hope for restoration. He is worthy of our exaltation. He is worthy of the credit for all that is good. He can bear the burden of your brokenness, your friend's brokenness, and your child's. He alone is worthy of exaltation. The third aspect of how we are a help to others is we must be available. Must be available. Let's go to verse 36 and read to 39. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Haha. <clears throat> she was full of good works and acts of charity. And those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So here we are in the story, the next portion of, of this passage. One of the most beloved disciples was now dead. Such a tragedy. The scriptures talk about her as though she was full of good works and acts of charity. That she had made clothes for the poor and the needy. That's the picture here. She was a, if you will, a New Testament model of Proverbs 31.20 where it says she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She was a New Testament model of this Old Testament passage. And they had washed her. The disciples around her had washed her body and had had it ready for burial. Let me make a couple comments quickly about Dorcas here. She was not a leader in the church that we know of. And she didn't have to preach or be in front of people. And yet her ministry made her endeared by those around her. Let me ask you this question, and, and this will probably be a little stinging. Will you be that older lady or that older man that dies with many standing beside your casket endeared by the ministry that you had in their lives? Will they weep because of the great ministry that you had in their life? Or will they pass by wondering what you did with your time? I wonder if they spent it all on the computer. Or did they spend it all running kids from one entertainment to the next? I wonder if they spent all their time ensuring their ne- next successful move. Listen, Dorcas was available to minister to these widows. And that's why she was endeared at her death. That's why they were weeping. That's why Luke goes to link here to show us that they were weeping at her bedside, showing what? Tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made to care for them 
while she was alive. Dorcas was available. Peter was available. Right? right? He, it's not that he's just chilling. Like, they go and say, come without delay. And what happens? Peter comes without delay. He was available. He understood the importance of what was happening. So let me ask this question. Do you have space in your life for other people? Now listen, if you do, then, and you're living faithfully, then, then be encouraged. I would still encourage you to, to think about it and to, to critique it. And, but do you have space in your life for other people? Some of you are too busy. Like too busy with the wrong things. Listen, in our culture, busyness is applauded as godliness. It's applauded as though those who are busy are the ones who are most righteous. It's applauded in the church as well. So are you available? What do you spend all your time doing? Like, do you spend it indulging in television, trying to save a penny, working more hours because you can't figure out where all your money has gone, catching up on Facebook? Again, remember here, Peter was doing good things, but he was still available. Listen, being available means having space in your life to give to other people. Space of time, space of emotion, space of mental energy. You have space to give to others. Now, right now, if I'm assessing this, I'm going to go, okay, well, how much of my life is taken up because I have made space and I'm actively giving it to others right now, right? So that's a, a good thing, most likely. Then you've got to look at, okay, what space am I not giving up? And is that okay? Is that because of too much self-indulgence? If that's for too much numbing of my mind, maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But the point is, is am, do I have space in my life? And is it enough space in my life to be available to other people? Realize for some of you, those other people that you have made space for in your life are your children. Even in that situation, you must think, okay, am I just involved here with my children and do I need to move out and be more available outside of that? That's a good question to ask too. Do we have to be careful that we don't draw lines of what availability, just because it looks this way for this person means it's got to look this way for this person. That's not the point. The point is, is, Examine your heart, help someone else, ask someone else to help examine your heart. Do I have space in my life for other people and is it enough space? That figure will look different for other people in different seasons of life. So be available. Next one, be dependent on the Lord. Be dependent on the Lord. Verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Don't miss this, right? Peter who 
has seen many miracles, sends them out so that he could pray. There's a couple important things that we have to make note of in what Peter does here. First of all, I think he didn't want to draw attention to himself. He wanted a quiet place to pray. Here's the question. Why didn't Peter just say in front of everybody, get up and walk? I mean, why didn't he just come right in and go, you are healed? Here's one reason, I think. It's because he, he presumed nothing about the will of God. He presumed nothing about the will of God. Listen, if you want to be helpful to other people, you cannot presume upon the will of God. To walk in and go, get up, be healed, is saying as though you know what the mind of God and the will of God is. Just like telling someone in their brokenness, you know what, if you do this step, this step, and this step, you'll be fine. You are presuming upon the will of God because God might intend for that person to suffer longer. God might intend for that person to to do five steps instead of three. He didn't presume upon the will of God. How often do we presume upon God for ourselves and for the helping of other people? I'm trying to help someone grow in whatever they're struggling with. Here's an example. And if I'm not walking prayerfully through the situation, then I am presuming upon God. I am simply expecting that He will give me what I am after in this person's life. If I am not seeking God in prayer, why? There's a couple important things about this idea of prayer in the midst of helping people. The first one is this. We must be dependent on God. We must be dependent on God if we're going to help other people. Prayer, if it does nothing else, true prayer acknowledges dependence on God. Now I believe it does way more But if it does nothing else, it at the very least says you as the one praying, I am utterly dependent on God for this help. It says I can't do this on my own. Listen, I'm telling you, having spent many hours in counseling people formally and informally, I've been faced with this many times. I go in thinking, I got this. I know how I'm going to walk from here to here to here to here to here. And I just realize, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have been presuming upon the Lord, thinking I can do this on my own. We must be dependent on God. Prayer shows us that prayer is an act of, true prayer is an act of genuine dependence. But secondly, prayer also recognizes God's ability and power to do abundantly more than we ask. Like, are, are, is your desires in helping that person, are they even uh, grand enough? Like, or are you just like, I'm just hoping to get them through this. Like, I'm just hoping to help them get to tomorrow. What about helping them thrive and rejoicing in the Lord always until the day that they die and meet their Savior? What about that? 
as, as a desire for someone's heart. What about that? What about praying for that? That they would be set free from it all completely. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within who? Us. Listen, you and I don't have the power to eternally help anybody on our own. But we have the power in us, the Spirit, to help someone for all of eternity. Why do you think our helping often, so often, stops at the physical or doesn't have lasting changes on the soul? Because oftentimes we are doing it in our power, not calling upon the power of the God in us. So be dependent on the Lord. Lastly, be free from prejudice. Be free from prejudice. We'll be in verse 42. Be free from prejudice. And he, Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's talk about Peter for a few moments. Peter spent his entire life thinking lowly of anyone who was not a Jew. He didn't give them the same respect that he gave his fellow Jews. He didn't give them the same benefit of the doubt as he did his fellow Jews. He had preconceived opinions of other people, not based on biblical reasoning or facts. He had prejudice. But already, just in the past couple chapters... Peter has seen the conversion of Samaritans, right? Those who were not respected by the Jews. Those who the Jews would have nothing to do with. We've seen the conversion of the Ethiopian. Again, not a Jew. Now, Peter stays with a tanner. You go, what's a tanner? A tanner was despised in Jewish society during this time. Despised. I think of them kind of like a, a taxidermist in, as far as what they did, what they dealt with, what they worked with. They worked with animal carcasses, and especially their skins. Therefore, the tanner would have been perpetually unclean. He would have been unclean, untouchable. The Jews would not have supposed to have been around him whatsoever, and he would have been shunned by the local synagogue. There was no hope for this man in the eyes of the Jews. Put it this way he was outside the scope of God's salvation, not helpable. Such that like, the idea of him being here with them like, is reminiscent of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Why would you even 
Why would you even talk to them, Jesus, let alone sit down and have dinner with them? Why would you even talk to Simon the Tanner, let alone go stay at his house? But what you see, what you see with Peter here is the walls of his prejudice are tumbling down all around him. Don't miss this. As we move on next week, as the gospel goes to the Gentiles, look first here what's happening. The walls, the, the walls of prejudice are tumbling down in Peter first, and then Paul takes over in this great movement of the gospel to the Gentiles. Listen, all of us struggle with prejudice to some degree. Whether you realize it or not, all of us struggle with prejudice to some degree. I'm going to give you three examples. For some, it's racial prejudice. For some, it's racial prejudice. Well, let me give you an example. Well, that's just how people of that race act. They're always disobeying the police, and that's why they get shot. It's an example of prejudice. Listen, in your experience, hear me very clearly, I'm choosing my words very carefully. In your experience, it might be that most of those situations have involved a certain race from your experience. But to take your experience and then judge an entire group of people, that's being Precious. Because what you're doing, listen, you're withholding understanding. You're withholding grace. You're withholding patience functionally here. Because you're taking a few situations and making opinions about an entire group of people based upon your very limited experience. Racial prejudice. Another example. You're in a certain part of town where statistically crime is higher, and there's no doubt about it. Like, it's higher there. Provable, statistically, compared to the rest of the neighborhoods, you're in that block of town. Listen, it is wise, just make this caveat here, it is wise and good to exercise safety and caution, whatever that might look like. Like, to, to exercise safety and caution. And that, what I mean by whatever it might look like is that might look like different depending on your scenario. It's not okay to not realize that there are likely very good people within that community. And what I mean by good is people who aren't perpetuating the crimes, that aren't doing the evil things. I'm not saying they're good as in morally good before God. We don't know. But there are likely good community members. And to throw the whole group out because of a few, you're being prejudiced. But even more than that, it's prejudice to withhold grace, to withhold patience, and the gospel from them thinking, well, they're just a troubled group of people. If I go there, there would be no hope for the receiving of the gospel. So why go? 
He's being prejudiced. This is what has been happening to the tanner all his life. He's just perpetually evil, unclean, filthy. He has no hope, so why go share with him the goodness of God? Another example of being prejudiced. Political prejudice. In our culture right now, if you have any critique, let me give you an example. You can say this about multiple different things in the political landscape. I'm just going to use the president. If you have any critique about the president, you are immediately perceived as a crazy liberal. What is that? It's just being prejudiced. It's taking one critique that someone has about this particular person and then making an opinion about that entire person because of one statement that they have made. It's being prejudiced. But listen, let me ask you these questions. Can you see where these things hinder the proclamation of the gospel. They hinder unity in the body. They hinder solidarity and vision for the kingdom of God. Listen, prejudice kills the movement of the kingdom. You realize that? Had Peter, had Paul not overcome their prejudice, the gospel would have stopped at the Jews. And you and I would be going to hell. Listen, don't miss this. The gospel moves to the Gentiles, but it must move through Peter first. At least so the story goes. God will surely move to the Gentiles, but he is doing it as he tears down the prejudices in Peter's heart. Listen, it's easy for us to minister to people we prefer, the people who feel safest, the people who look and think like we do. Look, I get it. It's easier. It's simple for us to be in community with people who make us feel comfortable. Why? Let's ask the question, why? Why does that make us feel more comfortable? Because they affirm our prejudices. When we look at someone who's like ourselves, It affirms what we think about ourselves and what we think about others. It makes us feel good about our assessment. It doesn't challenge our assessment of ourselves. Listen, we think because there are a few good things about us that we are in totality awesome people. Because I go to church and I attend house gallery, I must be a cool Christian. It's a good thing God has me. It's a good thing this church has me. When we hang out with people who remind us of our good parts, it affirms our prejudices of others and ourselves. It does not challenge those things. Here's a truth that isn't prejudice. Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3. And you and I, 
were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And if you didn't understand how evil you were, he goes on, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, our flesh, not Satan's, our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Listen, he's saying not one race, not one group of people. We all were this. Without, apart from the grace of God, you would be the one perpetuating that crime in that neighborhood. And this is God's statement of us. It's not prejudice, it's reality. We all lived in the passions of our flesh, and we all still at times want to do the same thing, even though we have been set free from it by His grace. But listen, it's not prejudice. Look what, ha- look what happens next. Look what happens next. Listen, prejudice moves away from people in condemnation because you are not like me. Love and mercy moves toward people with hope in Christ because none of us were like Him. In verse 4, he says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were everything he just said in verses 1, 2, and 3, even when that was a reality, even when we were the worst part of town, even when we were the worst group of people, even when we were the worst enemy of God, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Listen, Christ was involved. He had been involved in carrying out the mission of God from the very beginning, even as we see him creating the world for his Father in the book of Genesis. Then Christ comes in the flesh to be involved with his people as he ministered. Did he have important things to do in heaven? Yeah. But he left to be involved with his people. Christ didn't come just to raise people from physical death, though, like Dorcas. He came to die a physical death that we all deserved, so that just like Dorcas, who opens her eyes unto new life, our souls, our very souls, might have eyes open to behold the glory of God unto new eternal life. Christ was available both to minister to people physically But ultimately, praise God, he was available to die physically so that we might be made alive physically and spiritually. Christ shows us dependence through prayer, right? He shows it as he walks through his life. You see him depending on prayer and talking and communing with the Father. But the ultimate display of Christ's dependence on his Father was when he committed his life into the hands of the Father as his body is committed to the cross. He trusted as he goes to the cross that his Father would exalt him unto new life. So we are poor without Christ. We want to be available only for the things that we want to do conveniently. 
We love to be exalted. We glory in being self-sufficient. And we struggle to love and care for people who aren't like us. But Jesus, knowing the depths of our depravity more than we will ever know, did not turn his head away from us in prejudice. As the song says, he did not say with cold indifference, give them what they deserve. In grace, he says, I will dwell with them. I will earn their righteousness. I will take their sin upon my shoulders. I will go to the cross for them. Praise God that Jesus wanted and was able not only to be helpful to us, but wanted and was able to save us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in our struggles or the sin that is lurking in our hearts, Father, to the effects of sin that have come upon us, that, Father, we would see that you have called those whom you have redeemed to be helpful to other people. But just as you are Lord over other parts of our lives, you are Lord over how we help other people. You have a way. You have a plan. And we who are your people are to submit to that plan if we are to be helpful. And helpful in a way that impacts eternity. And in a way that impacts the kingdom for which you died. So Father, I pray that you would help us to to see that our hope is not in doing all these things perfectly. Our hope is in your son Jesus who did them all perfectly. And because we have faith in his doing, may we then, out of faith and love, want to do these things well. May we want to honor you, Father, serve you in these ways. Help us to be more available. Help us to be more involved. Help us to exalt Christ with every breath that we take. Help us to be dependent on you, Father, and help free us from our prejudice. Make us more into the image of your Son, Jesus. Please. I love you. Thank you for these words and this text. Father, may your spirit do what only the spirit can do in applying these words to our lives. Father, for it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.